2: Harded, well, Mr. Wood <laughs> me. Either way, it, it's it My so many I know. That's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host Kyle Wood, and joining me once again, I am very excited. I have Tim Bogats from the Art of Education University and host of Arted Radio. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, thank you for the invite uh I'm always excited to come on. you always put great artists for me to talk about so uh it's easy to say yes to the invitation <laughs> i'm I'm glad to be back.
2: I am glad you were up for doing this one um ever I was listening to your episode about um I think it was a mailbag one where you mentioned uh, Keith Haring and the Basquiat ball, right? Mm-hmm. The two basketballs yes. Yes. modeled after the artists. And Keith Haring has just been stuck in my head ever since. And I needed a, I needed a bit of a palate cleanser because I recently did an episode on Max Beckman and The Night. Mm. Yep. And like yep. I love Max Beckman. And I I absolutely love that painting i did a study of it copying it um you know 20 by 30 canvas or 30 by 40 maybe it was like 1200 boxes using the grid system (laughs) um but like i love it but man it's dark so i'm glad now we're doing something a little bit more sort of life affirming i'm just
1: gonna say this is all the way on the opposite end of the spectrum from from that so it's a, a big
2: change yeah, um, and we need that joy, especially this time of year. And mm-hmm. speaking of joy, I'm just going to shout out like your most recent episode of your podcast that I was listening today about the reveal, the the art room makeover oh, that you all did. That was um, so much fun. That was awesome. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I'm going to link to the YouTube channel and the videos because what you did in that art room was inspiring it was beautiful like the team took over an art room and just like organized it so flawlessly i i was like watching the video taking notes like okay i gotta <laughs> i gotta get the pegboard for all of my palettes i gotta switch to a different palette that has the little thumb hole I, I i never liked the thumb hole but now i can see it hangs on a pegboard and it's like that's brilliant and all of the different stuff you guys did well yeah, was- done
1: Thank you. Appreciate that. That was an awesome project, being able to transform uh, an art room. A lot of credit goes to Lindsay McGinnis, who uh, I work with. She organized all of that, all of the logistics. Uh just put me to work on a couple DIYs, which were super fun. I was glad uh, to be a part of it. But that was that was her baby from uh, start to end. And it was a very, very cool project. And, you know, even if you don't need an art room makeover, uh, I hope that the the YouTube uh, videos are entertaining enough to, to watch. So, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to check it out. It was it was a really cool project. We had a ton of fun with it.
2: Yeah, I always love a good positive transformation and that leads me right back into today's subject because Keith Haring was all about that positive change. Um, you know, Keith Haring was born May 4th, 1958, in Reading, Pennsylvania. He grew up in Cutstown, which I always somehow read as Kunsttown, you know, like the <laughs> like Jason the German art, like, art word. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't know why. That's just like where my brain goes as I see that collection of letters, but um, it was a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was one of four kids, I believe all, um, all K names. Right? Yes. I
1: I was going to interject with that. Yeah. Uh, so they had Keith, Kristen, Karen, and Kay. So I don't know if, uh, that comes from the cutstown. Also, are we pronouncing it right? It is. Is it cutstown? I don't, I don't know for sure, but, uh, yeah, all, all four of them, uh, named with K. And I'm curious if that was because of, you know, the name of the town as well.
2: I think that's interesting. It's it's funny how names come about because I've known people who are like in families where it's all K names or all M names or all whatever names. Mm-hmm. And, and then like I've known people who are the exact opposite. Like my sister will not repeat the same first letter of any child's names. Okay. Um, you know, and she's got a whole bunch of other rules because my, you know, my family I family is very that type too. A like, and very, you know, we've got our <laughs> ways of doing stuff. But it's interesting how people go like one of two ways with that.
1: Right. Yeah. They're either all in or they're like never ever. But yeah, I I can see both, uh, both sides of that argument. I think it can be interesting both ways.
2: And on the topic of um, his family, his sister Kay actually wrote a book, Keith Haring, The Boy Who Just Kept Drawing. And I yes. absolutely loved that book. I have read it to my own children so many times. It is a beautiful picture book telling the story of Keith Herring from the time he was a child through his career. Um, lovely illustrations with so many little, um, Easter eggs in there with like his circle mm-hmm. of friends including you know Basquiat but also some people that are maybe not quite so well known so you'll see like Klaus Nomi in the background and stuff like that um but i i loved that book and actually even though it's a picture book, it has a lot of good information in there.
1: It um, does. It does. Yeah. And I was just going to say, uh, I've tried really hard to get Kay on the Art Ed Radio podcast. I really want to talk to her about this book. She never returns any of my messages or any of my calls. It's very sad. It's a-
2: Well, if she's not returning yours, there's no way she'll ever talk to me. But <laughs> according to her book... Keith was a boy who just would not stop drawing. Um, You know, from an early age, he showed an interest in art. He was inspired by Walt Disney, Dr. Seuss, you know, the standard big name stuff. He dreamed of working for Disney. And I think one of the sort of heartbreaking things I remember reading, I think it was Kenny Sharf. I'm not positive, but one of his friends in Keith's final days brought in a letter he got from disney saying they wanted to work with him but i guess um i guess keith didn't initially believe it he thought like his friends are just trying to cheer him up yeah and by the time he realized it was an actual offer it was just too late um but on a more fun fact and anecdote You know the three-eyed smiley face from from, uh, Keith Haring? It's one of his iconic images. So a year and a half ago, my family were on vacation, and there was a Keith Haring exhibit um, in a small museum outside Philadelphia. And so we went to it, and there I saw apparently that three-eyed smiley face came about when he was looking at his old childhood notebooks and coloring books for Mm -hmm. some inspiration. He saw one of those like how to draw Mickey things and and he messed it up he put one of the eyes in the wrong spot and he was just like okay the only way to balance this out is to add a third eye and so he just ran with it (laughs) Which I just think, I I love that in so many ways. Like, the fact that he's looking back at his childhood stuff for inspiration, the fact that he messes up and just keeps going with it. You know, Keith Haring was one of those artists who was said to, like, never really draw, always just fearless, spontaneously Mm -hmm. creating, didn't didn't erase, just kept going with it. Yeah. and I think that's cool. I have never been able to work like that. I
1: was going to say I think there's a lesson there for for a lot of us uh for a lot of elementary kids for sure. Uh but yeah, just I I think, you know, everybody who's learning to draw can probably take uh take a page out of the Keith Haring book and yeah, just like like you said, be fearless, like jump into it and and just try and keep going without Making everything perfect without thinking that everything has to be an exact way. Like, there's definitely something to be learned there.
2: Yeah, um and that's that's probably why it's so inspiring to me because it's one of those things where it's like I love the art and I cannot imagine creating like that, but I appreciate someone who does. And you know, it, it, we're kind of hopping around from like his mature artist face to his childhood and back and forth. But I feel like in some ways the two informed each other. Um, as a child his father was an engineer but also an amateur cartoonist he encourages keith to draw i i read this little anecdote that kay included saying that growing up their father would like draw and doodle in the margins of You know, the playbills and stuff like when they're at church or they're at school performances, he would start doodling and then pass it on to the kids to add their drawings. And then the family gets home and mom puts it on the fridge. It's just like... in some ways, I I don't know that I can always condone that kind of behavior because it it feels a little bit disrespectful to the. I was going to say it's
1: it's a little subversive. It is a little dis- disrespectful to the people performing, but at the same time, like if you want creative kids, like that's that's a good way to do it.
2: It is. And and it's so like wholesome of the family doing this together and and everybody being a part of it and it being celebrated. Um, and I think that really comes through. Like, you know, he he does the formal art study. He goes to the Ivy School of Professional Art in Pittsburgh, you know, studying commercial art. Then 1978, he moves to New York. He said he moved to New York City because he he just wanted intensity in his life and in his art and New York city was the place to go for that. So he attends the school of visual arts, which fantastic art school. Mm -hmm. Um, He studies painting as well as semiotics for those not familiar with semiotics. It's the study of signs and signifiers, which again makes perfect sense for somebody whose work was just Loaded with symbolism. Yep, yep. Um, and while he's there, he starts experimenting, you know, video performance, all of that sort of stuff. He was just really enthralled with everything happening in the city. Um, you know, he he's inspired by the hip-hop scene, which was new and fresh at that time, the breakdance in the club scene. And I think one of the things that I found most interesting is They were talking about the club scene at that time, how that was a really integrated space. You had Mm -hmm. people of all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, young, old, rich, poor, coming together and just having a good time dancing all night. And he was inspired by that. He actually um, got to know some club owners, like painting murals on their walls of dancing figures. And he... Um, painted performers, you know, Grace Jones Mm -hmm. did the, like he painted all the time, everywhere he went. And I, I, I love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He had like a singular passion for it. And, you know, you talk about dancing and movement. And I think that's one of the things that, that he does really well is just, he is able to capture movement and, both, you know, the visual idea of movement, but also figures, like, in motion. Uh, and he does that so simply, even with just little motion lines or just little additions to his his drawings or his paintings. And it's incredible that with just a, a couple, you know, strokes of the pen, like, he can show all of this movement from uh, his... Uh, figures that that he's painting or that he's drawing and i think that's one of the the huge signifiers it says you know like this is a keith herring piece right here
2: yeah i mean the movement was always incredible and it is like you said the motion lines but also the fact that he was perfectly comfortable having them in these wonky poses that you know you see Mm -hmm. a body in motion um and i think it worked really well you got that sense in all of his work and yeah. he gained that early recognition um you said the stroke of a pen it was the stroke of his chalk marks that yes. that really got got the ball rolling um i guess what would happen is in the subways uh you know when they had unsold ad space they would put up a black paper to to cover up the The old ads that were no longer, you know, being paid for. So they didn't want people to get free advertisement by just having their poster hang up. And so what he would do was he would just take white chalk and draw on those black papers. It was graffiti, but, you know, he found it a space that he could get his art out there. Mm -hmm. And he continued doing that even after he was really really successful selling out you know gallery shows in a matter of hours you know he would pull in like a quarter of a million dollars of sales in the night but then he would go down to the subway platform and draw on the walls because he wanted everybody even people who would never set foot in those galleries to be able to see and enjoy his art and I think that's really cool yeah Absolutely. And
1: I was just going to say, it's like a a great place for him to experiment and and try new things. And it's just, yeah, like you said, kind of where he, he got his start. He formed those habits of just drawing on whatever surfaces he might be able to find. It just felt like he always came back to that. It was just something that was just sort of inherent in uh, in his work, like this need to just put his drawings everywhere that he could. And and I love that. I I love the idea of putting all of those uh, drawings out there. And then, like you said, just kind of the idea of like democratizing, like, you know, getting getting art out to everyone, you know, getting art to the masses so everybody can see it. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that more. But um, yeah, I, I think that's an important part of of what he was doing.
2: Yeah, and I mean he would sort of develop his style, some of his iconography based on how people are reacting to that. Like he he would study it as simple as it seems he was paying attention to to that, to to make sure that he was very deliberate in what he was creating, um, I I feel like I should, on some level, just for you know the C Y A mention it <laughs> is illegal. Don't try that yes. at home because yes. you know not everybody's going to take kindly to you drawing on on subway platforms and stuff like that. Although it's hard to imagine New York City police officers with all the stuff going on really caring that much about chalk drawings that's Um, very true in in interviews i saw he said some of the cops would would actually like wear his buttons like they liked what he was doing they would they would see him and kind of high five him but he he did also tell a story about getting arrested doing it sometimes he would get like a ten dollar fine he said at least once he was arrested brought downtown and He says the person behind the desk starts looking at him like, what could this nerd have done to get himself arrested here (laughs) Like with everything going on? And and, you know, he explains like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, making these chalk drawings or whatever. And the person behind the desk, like the tone shifts immediately and she calls over a bunch of other police officers and she's like. This is the kid who's been making those chalk drawings and like everybody's just like <laughs> you know happy slapping him on the back or whatever. It's just like it's so it's so funny when you think about the way that graffiti is perceived by different audiences um and I guess especially at that time people saw it in different ways, but a lot of people, even people who couldn't officially endorse it, did seem to appreciate it.
1: Yeah, that was that was really fun. I was just gonna say, um, I heard one story. I don't know if this is true or not, but very similar, uh, where the cops caught him, uh, you know, doing his graffiti, and they radioed it in, and uh, you know, back at the station, like, yeah, you need to bring him in, and so they arrest him, took him down to the station, and once he gets there, uh, he finds out they just wanted to bring him in because everybody wanted to meet him, like all the cops <laughs> at the station, just like wanted to, to see who this guy was and so very similar you know they all just kind of want to shake his hand he ended up like doing little sketches little drawings and just handing them out to to all the cops which i think is pretty funny
2: yeah i wonder if we just like saw different accounts of the same incident because like (laughs) could be could be mine was like (laughs) what i saw was an interview that keith gave in the late 80s where he he mentioned that. Um, yeah. and you know, accounts change over time. So who, who mm-hmm. knows? But that, mm-hmm. that feels like it feels like something along those lines must have happened. Yeah, um, for sure. I always find it interesting though, like as a graffiti artist, I'm I'm really conflicted about that label being affixed to him, just because mm-hmm. it's to me, it feels like the term outsider art. Where it's yeah. like there's something that feels like it's it's pigeonholing him and other mm-hmm. artists um who who make public street art or unsanctioned public street art, right, gorilla right. art, like however you wanna describe it. Um because it 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 conjures this notion in a lot of people's heads of some vandalism and something destructive mm-hmm. and while he was creating work without permission in these public spaces and technically would be considered graffiti it feels like it's of a different sort it feels like it's categorically different to me and i've never really liked when people are called i i honestly don't even like terms like folk art because right. it just it it always feels like it's well you're this kind of artist Yeah, not an artist Mm -hmm. just an artist feels good i think
1: that's good and i mean this is probably a bigger discussion than what we really want to get into tonight but i i think with keith herring uh you know i was gonna ask you like do you consider him a graffiti artist or or is it bigger than that but for for me my opinion would be that he transcends that label you know like it Yes, graffiti was one of the things he did, but he also did so much more, you know, just from from huge murals to sculptures to, like you said, all of this gallery work. He's painting rooms and walls and windows and everything that, that you can think of. And so, I mean, he he had his roots in graffiti and something he always came back to. But uh, like you said, he just didn't. He did so much more than that.
2: I always I also found it really interesting as I was prepping for this, I, you know, I'm reviewing some interviews and stuff like that. And, you know, we'll get into a little bit like the pop shop, you, you know, mm-hmm. as well as I do. 1986, he opens the pop shop in New York. And at that point, he was a pretty well-established bankable artist. Selling oh, yeah, in the gallery for sure. For sure. And he was criticized for that because basically, I, I don't know, like growing up in the, the the punk scene as I did, it was always like, you know, their sellouts and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. His was like the, the art world version of that where they're, they're just saying like, Oh, it's so commercial and and everything like that to be Mm -hmm. selling t-shirts of it, which I always found in some way kind of just, it it seems ridiculous because selling art in a gallery is also commercializing (laughs) the art world, right? Right. Like it's all commodification. It, it's just like, you know, one is only accessible to people with millions of dollars in the bank. And Mm -hmm. Keith's whole thing was art is for everyone. And yes, even if you can only afford, you know, a $20 poster or a $1 sticker, um, Heck, he would even print thousands and thousands of copies using his own money and give them away for free. Mm -hmm. He wanted art out there for the people. And I I felt like in some ways it was the exact opposite of that selling out commodification, all of that. Like he said in his in his interviews that like if I wanted to just make a bunch of money, I wouldn't spend time on these low-dollar sales. Right,
1: right. Yeah, if he can sell stuff for six figures, like, there's no reason to you know, be, be selling those $20 t-shirts. But yeah, I think you're right. And I think it, it comes back to that idea of democratizing art of, of creating art for everyone. Um, cause yeah, he used to just walk around and like, if people recognized him, you know, he would do a little like drawing from of his sketchbook and then they have a Keith Haring original, you know, and just do that for people on the street, which I think is, is spectacular. Um, but i i was going to draw the connection um because i was thinking about this uh while you're talking with uh Felix Gonzalez Torres mm. uh who was very much also about democratizing uh art and i i believe you have a podcast on on him from back a few years ago but uh he did the the giant pile of candy in the corner of the room, uh, which, you know, everyone who comes is welcome to a piece of candy or, you know, he would do prints. And like Keith thing you know, he'd do printmaking. He would have a thousand, uh, you know, prints in the gallery and he would encourage everyone to take one. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like a thousand people have an original Felix Gonzalez Torres print, which I, I think is spectacular because, you know, there's probably not a lot of other ways for them to to get one of those. And, you know, just because you have more money doesn't mean that you can appreciate art more or appreciate it better. Uh, so I I really love this idea. And like you said, I, I think with the pop shop uh you know he's accomplishing uh a lot of those goals of of bringing art to everyone
2: yeah and i 100% agree i loved i think this is why keith haring has long been one of my favorite artists because it's so positive it's so accessible and like one of the things that i have found in studying art history is it feels so often like Every artist is in some ways like rejecting the movements that came before them and everything mm-hmm. like that. And in every interview Keith Haring was always just like, "Oh, you know, what I'm doing is different, but it doesn't diminish the people who came before me and who are right. still doing great things and it, their work is interesting in a different way." And it was just like, "Man, he just seems like he was the nicest guy."
1: Yes, yes, um, absolutely
2: but not fluffy not like not naive his work as much as it's bright and colorful and and has a childlike spirit he's also addressing aids awareness apartheid drug addiction you know equality across the board like all of these different really major issues he's addressing them through art in a way that makes them palatable Mm-hmm. and accessible for people breaking it down into simple words, slogans, and often even just symbols. And I I thought that was really beautiful about his work too. As he got that platform, he was always trying to use it for good.
1: Yeah, and I I think if you, you know, listen to or read interviews with him or just, you know, figure out how he's talking about his work and what he's trying to do, that you can tell that those are issues he he genuinely cares about you know that he cares deeply about and like you said uh, a lot of people are dismissive because it his work is so simple or so cartoony but there really is a, a deeper meaning there and like you said he he really wanted to have a voice when it comes to to social issues and I I absolutely respect you know everything that he's done with that
2: Yeah. And so I think that gives us a good segue. So after the break, we're going to talk about one of his specific works.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda.
2: Now we're back, and once again, Tim Bogats from Art of Ed uh, and host of Art of Ed Radio. Thank you so much again for joining me. And we've got Keith Haring's. I I think it was officially untitled, but I've always just referred to it as DJ Dog from 1983.
1: Well, I mean it. It is a DJ Dog. Like I mean, you know, we can call it untitled, but everybody knows this is this is the DJ Dog.
2: So what do you see in here? What's jumping out at you with this one?
1: Well, I mean, like we just talked about very simplistic work. Uh, you know, there's a dog standing up. He's got his two turntables cause he's a DJ. Uh, very simple, uh, as far as the colors, kind okay? of the, the dog is yellow. The background is blue, uh, the turntables are green and the vinyl is red. He's also got, uh, a red vinyl, uh, holding in his hand. He's ready to switch one of his vinyls up. And as we talked about earlier with the motion lines, they're all over the place. So you can see the, the record spinning, uh, his arms are moving and his, uh, his voice is coming out he's barking, uh, and you, can see all of that through the motion lines so black outline black motion lines and uh, kind of a black frame uh, around everything to to hold it all together
2: yeah and I mean that heavy black outline that was characteristic of so much of his work Mm -hmm. um, which obviously is in some way owed, owed to the cartooning that he grew up on I've, I find it interesting the color scheme here. And I know there are lots of different versions of this with different color schemes, but he's essentially putting together complementary pairs. You know, we've got the mm-hmm. the yellow and the blue, the red and the green. It's really high contrast. And that's the first thing that that jumps out at me is it's like it's the visual equivalent of almost yelling at the, the yes. viewer. Um, it's in some ways a loud image because it's it's very high contrast. And I think in some ways that's the point. Um, as I look at this, you know, the, the dog was one of his recurring symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that all over the place and particularly the barking dog was almost a symbol of sort of distrust or, you know, calling out or calling attention to or re- sounding the alarm of some Mm -hmm. sort i know like my dog barks at every passerby it's it's a serious problem but um (laughs) i I think it's an interesting combination of the dog barking and the turntables the dj i mean keith herring loved hip-hop from the earliest days he was really inspired by breakdancers and hip hop and there were certain DJs that he followed through through the clubs like um oh I, the name is escaping me but the, you know the early pioneers of that house music he was really inspired by that and often at gallery openings he would have a DJ there um just center of the gallery Bringing that vibe and that movement and that energy to his exhibitions, which is not typical of any gallery no, openings I, I've been. In.
1: No, I was just gonna say he does a great job of sort of bridging the gap between the normal, uh, the the typical gallery crowd, and then uh, sort of the places that that Keith was hanging out when he was not. Uh, hanging out in the the art world galleries uh and yeah like you said uh did a, a good job of bridging that gap and you know i yeah. i love uh like you said bringing energy to not only in shows but uh you know i would say that's how i would describe this painting as well it's just energetic there's there's a lot going on the the bright colors uh the motion lines the barking all of that put together uh it just it has this this feeling of energy that like so you're kind of excited when you see it
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things that, and maybe this is me overthinking things, but I kind of see that dog, that barking dog symbol in combination with the DJ as almost just pointing out in some ways that like hip hop is giving voice. Hip hop is this art form that is speaking and and speaking a truth that's maybe not recognized by other people or appreciated by other people. It's giving, it's raising these voices. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Especially back then. Uh, Cause he talked very often about the importance, the significance of lyrics in hip hop and, and these performers and, and the aesthetics that they adopted and, and connections to um, statements about apartheid and all these other Bigger, broader global issues. And I think it's really important to recognize that, like a DJ and a dog and a cartoon figure, on some gut level, it's fun, but there's something more behind it as well
1: yeah this is this is one of those times where i just love to hear from the artist because you and i are both sitting here thinking about like you know what does this represent about the broader world what can this tell us about you know new york city in the 1980s what what kind of a story is it telling what what bigger issues does it speak to but then like we could talk to him and he's just like i don't know man the dog was cool djs are fun that's all i was doing you know like you you never really know but um yeah i i would say take an combination with just sort of everything that he's put together uh i think you're probably right that it is hinting at uh at a little bit more
2: yeah and in his broader body of work we do see the repetition in the dogs and actually other artists you know including like banksy have used the keith herring barking dog mm-hmm. as a symbol to go into um artworks that usually were a little bit socially conscious and sounding an alarm about stuff. So I, I have to think I'm not the only person who reads it in, in that way, that symbol of the barking dog. But I think on some level there probably is truth to it's just fun. Yeah. And, and I think that's an equally valid interpretation of all of his works is it's Mm -hmm. just fun in Mm -hmm. some ways And I think the thing I love about Keith Haring is the earnestness. The way that he would embrace fun and just joy of the creation, of the art, of the aesthetic. You know, because I I think sometimes people can look at fun as sort of shallow. Mm -hmm. But, like, little joys, that's kind of what gets you through the day people need that
1: well and and for a lot of people that's that's what art is about you know like that bringing joy to people bringing uh you know a smile to someone's face bringing joy to people's life and that's what that's what art is about for a lot of people and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that
2: no i would i would actually argue there's everything right with that um and I guess just to wrap this one up, where do you feel like this one belongs? Is this a piece for, is this one for the Louvre? Is this one for the lab? Is this one for the Louvre?
1: Okay. So I usually think about this before I come on, but I did not do that tonight. Uh, And part of me says that it should be the lab because I feel like, he could do so much more with this it's very simple um you know uh, i i would love to see it developed more like you know think about turning this into a mural with you know all sorts of other figures an entire dance party are they all dogs dancing and are people dancing there's so much more that, that we could explore with this idea but i really think that there needs to be a keith haring work in the louvre uh, you know i don't know that You can tell the story of, you know, art in the 1980s or art in the New York scene without telling the story of Keith Haring. Uh, It's something very important in the annals of art history. And, you know, this work, DJ Dog, kind of epitomizes what he is all about. And so uh, I think it's a a great representation of what Keith Haring was all about. And so I'm going to say it goes in the Louvre.
2: I think it is no secret, I'm going to agree with you 100%, <laughs> that every museum needs a DJ dog, because Keith Haring, his work, <laughs> it brought joy to spaces that could be kind of joyless. Yes. and. We need that. You need that breath of fresh air. you need that energy, that movement, that vitality, and that earnestness. so much stuff and and I'm guilty of it myself. I look at stuff and I'm I'm trying to decipher these deeper meanings and and oh, it's hinting at this and getting into right, right. the weeds of this esoteric stuff. Um, and I even did that with the DJ dog. but at the end <laughs> of the day, it's also just fun. And that embrace of fun, in art, we take it so much more seriously when people explore the negative emotions. I don't know why we have to be dismissive of joy, but we shouldn't be. That is what we should be hanging on the walls and cherishing for the ages and bringing into our daily lives because that's what we need. So, Yeah, very well said. Love it. And I just want to say once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time once again to join me for um, another fun episode.
1: No thanks for the invite Uh, you know I always love coming on I think now though uh, I'm five for five on putting artwork in the lube uh, when you (laughs) ask me so if I get invited back sometime we maybe need to do an artist that I don't like as much and we can we can figure out where where that needs to go from there
2: you know what if Keith Haring has taught us it's that you can always be positive about stuff there's no shame in that
1: fair fair I like that
0: Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary
2: stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts.